A note before we begin. This episode contains discussions of violence against animals and suicide. Listener discretion is advised, especially for those under 13. If you or someone you know is experiencing suicidal thoughts, don't hesitate to call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 800-273-8255. There is help. There's a trope that comes up time and time again in news stories. Someone acts in a self-destructive way, leading to their injury or death. When their friends or family are asked to comment, they say things like, there were no warning signs, or we never thought something like this could happen. In reality, it's rare for a person to perform an act of self-harm without any warning. What's more likely is the person showed symptoms of mental distress that were too well hidden for their loved ones to notice. Sometimes a person's inner turmoil is so obscured, it takes years for their family to find some kind of explanation. Even then, questions go unanswered. It's hard to accept that someone who gives our life meaning might choose to end their own. But in these moments, we must remember that their actions are never about us. Through the grief and confusion, we can find a way of celebrating who they were without fixating on how they left. I'm Sarah Turney, and this is Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Thursday, I'll discuss a new missing person case ripped from history. I want to better understand the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. Today, I'm telling the story of a man who spent a summer investigating the disappearance of a casual acquaintance, Tom Young. He opened a shop in Tom's former workplace, befriended the people in Tom's social circle, and even planned to write a novel about his case. Then, under nearly identical circumstances, the amateur sleuth went missing. His name is Keith Reinhard. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. This episode is different from my previous ones. In part because today, I'm discussing two disappearances. Both Tom Young and Keith Reinhard walked away from the same small mountain town 11 months apart from one another and were never seen alive again. These men were virtually strangers. The only thing that really connected them was the fact that when Keith went missing, he was investigating Tom's disappearance. From a young age, Keith felt a sense of wanderlust. 
1954, at age 16, he ran away from home and spent a full month out west before heading back to his parents in Chicago. He was well known to disappear into the mountains for days at a time, trying to connect with some deeper version of himself. His son Sven later described Keith as a seeker, someone who needs to explore the wider world to make sense of his place in it. A man with irrepressible optimism, eager to see what life has to offer. As an adult, Keith enlists in the Air Force and spends nearly five years overseas. I don't know much about his service record, but while he was stationed in Germany, he discovers another passion. He loves writing, especially about athletics. He becomes the sports editor for the newspaper on base. And once his enlistment ends and he returns to civilian life, Keith makes this new hobby his career. In 1966, when he's 28, Keith lands a job as a sports writer with the Arlington Heights Herald, just outside of Chicago. Then he hops around a bit, taking gigs at different papers in the area. As his professional reputation builds, his personal life expands. Keith marries a woman named Carolyn, and together they have three kids, Sven, Kai, and Tiffany. They're a fun-loving family, famous for Keith's annual Beatles-themed blowouts. Every year, he invites basically the whole town to a massive party at his house. He'll hire live cover bands and set up video screenings of all the Beatles' greatest hits. These celebrations become legendary within Arlington Heights. You might think all this praise and attention would go to Keith's head, but he's courteous to everyone, especially his junior co-workers. He invites entry-level freelancers and part-time reporters to meetups with established journalists to help them feel more included in the newsroom. In short, Keith Reinhardt is a pillar of the community. He's widely regarded as a friendly, upstanding guy. His positive attitude is highly admired, even if that optimism can sometimes lead to pie-in-the-sky thinking. But much like his teenage years, Keith doesn't seem satisfied with staying in one place. Even at 49 years old, he's still itching to try new things. He tells his son Sven that he needs time for soul-searching. He says that he feels like he's running out of time to be young and carefree. His 50th birthday is looming, and he wants to cross some items off his bucket list before he's too old to live them out. Specifically, he wants to write a novel. So he decides to take a three-month sabbatical from work, beginning on June 15, 1988. He plans to spend the summer on his own, somewhere where he can hike and focus on his book. He lands on a small town in the Rocky Mountains called Silver Plume. Now, Keith has ties to Silver Plume going back for over a decade. One of his oldest childhood friends, Ted Parker, lives there, and Keith visits frequently. He's come to love this tiny little Colorado community of about 140 people. He also has an acquaintance in Silver Plume named Tom Young. Or rather, had an acquaintance, past tense. See, about eight months ago, Tom went missing under strange circumstances. Keith is fascinated by Tom's story and wants to write a novel based on the disappearance. He also intends to open a small photography studio while in Silver Plume, 
just to see if he can earn a living in this little haven. His pipe dream is that if all goes well, he can convince his family to join him in Colorado, and they can move there permanently. Although Carolyn doesn't know about this part of the plan, or at the very least, she doesn't take the suggestion seriously. It seems like this might be another example of Keith's over-idealism. Either way, in mid-June, he says goodbye to Carolyn and his kids, Sven, Kai, and Tiffany, and heads out on his mountainous retreat. He's ready to write, research, and retrace some of Tom's last known steps. Of course, Tom's path never led back home. And in following him, Keith seals his own fate. Listeners, most of you probably know that I host another podcast series called Serial Killers. What you may be surprised to learn is that we've been working on that podcast for five years now. So as a special treat for the fans, we've prepared an anniversary series examining the mythology surrounding four of the most feared killers who ever lived. Kemper, Gacy, Bundy, Dahmer. This four-part series uncovers the men behind the mayhem, analyzing what turned them into killers and how their lethal behavior made them renowned for all the wrong reasons. Serial Killers is the perfect podcast for any true crime or storytelling fan, and this fifth anniversary special is not one to miss. Check it out today by following Serial Killers, free and only on Spotify. Keith Reinhardt met Tom Young a number of times before he went missing. Keith's best friend, Ted Parker, was Tom's landlord. I don't have a ton of details on his case, probably because his disappearance predates the internet and wasn't widely covered, but I can tell his story in broad strokes. For years, Tom was an art teacher in Silver Plume, Colorado. He also ran the local bookshop, then, in September of 1987, he closed the store without warning. Shortly thereafter, he and his dog disappeared. I don't know the exact date of Tom's last public sighting, in part because by the time the police started investigating, the trail was long cold. See, right around the time Tom vanished, he was supposed to be taking a vacation to Europe, so when he didn't show up for work or pick up his mail, Nobody thought anything of it. They figured he was off traveling. It took about three weeks for anyone to raise the alarm about his absence. When Tom's disappearance was reported, it made the front page of the Clear Creek Current, a local paper that covers small towns in the Denver area. But as I mentioned, it wasn't covered by major news outlets. So eight months later, when Keith lands in Silver Plume, Colorado, he's forced to do a lot of his own investigating. He talks to Tom's neighbors and coworkers, gleaning firsthand accounts of Tom's life. And since Ted Parker still manages Tom's old storefront, Keith decides to lease the space and open a shop where he can sell framed photos and antiques. Now, I'm not totally clear on where Keith got these antiques or why he put so much into a business that theoretically was only going to be open for three months. Maybe he felt like recreating certain aspects of Tom's life would give his manuscript a more authentic feeling. It seems like the store is kind of a bust from the get-go. 
He earns some money off tourists, but it's not enough to live on. Even still, Keith soon starts telling everyone in Silverplume that he and his family might settle here permanently. His friend, Ted Parker, chalks this up to Keith's endless optimism. He's making major life decisions based on how he'd like things to be, not how they actually are. That first month in Silverplume seems to fly by. Keith spends his time hiking, researching for his novel, and hanging out with Ted Parker. It's clear he's falling in love with this little hamlet. And mid-July, he finally calls Carolyn to pitch the idea of relocating. She isn't exactly thrilled. In fact, she breaks down crying, not just because of the proposed move. She hasn't seen her husband in over a month and worries the separation is straining their relationship. But after some coaxing, she finally agrees to at least come visit. She plans a trip for August 11th. And by all accounts, Keith is looking forward to seeing his wife. Not that he's lonely by any means, he has plenty of friends in the small town, and they adore him. One investigator later notes that nobody has anything negative to say about Keith, even when they're intentionally prodded to criticize him. So all in all, Keith's life sounds pretty idyllic. He's pursuing his creative ambitions, surrounded by a supportive social network, and he'll soon be reunited with his wife. But beneath his happy veneer, Keith seems to be in a dark place. His daughter Tiffany says that the longer he stays in Colorado, the more obsessed Keith becomes with Tom's life and disappearance. It's all he talks about, especially after Tom's body is discovered in late July in the woods, two miles outside of Silverplume. Tom and his beloved pet boxer died of gunshot wounds to the head. His gun, which he bought less than a week before he disappeared, is next to his body. Police ruled Tom's death a suicide and closed the case. But Keith is suspicious because there's one aspect of the case that he believes doesn't add up. Tom's body was found under a tarp, as if someone covered him after his death. Plus, the gun's too corroded for police to do a full ballistics analysis, so there's no way to say for sure if Tom's firearm is the same one that killed him. Some of the locals think Tom Young was murdered, and his homicide is either being covered up or ignored by authorities. And Keith is one of the biggest advocates of this theory. He tells everyone he meets, Tom didn't kill himself. Now, I'll just say that Keith Reinhardt has a long history of romanticizing the ordinary. And this seems to be doubly true when it comes to the real life events inspiring his novel. So it's not surprising that he would latch onto this idea that Tom was killed. A few days later, on August 6, 1988, Keith attends a party sponsored by a Denver radio station. This is a major local festival, drawing roughly 250 guests from around the region. In other words, there are more out-of-towners partying in Silverplume than there are residents. And Keith is right at the center of everything. He's a social butterfly. He's flitting from one attendee to the next throwing back drinks and chatting up everyone. He even invites some revelers to continue the celebration back at his apartment after the festival closes. And the whole time, he's sharing theories about Tom's death, 
By the end of the night, the entire festival knows that Keith is writing a novel about his friend's alleged murder. The next day, on August 7th, Keith goes about his usual Sunday routine. He works a shift at his photo shop. Then he heads to the KP Cafe, a little diner owned by Ted Parker. At this point, it's already late afternoon. Yet on his way to the cafe, Keith stops every single person he passes to let them know he's going to hike up nearby Pendleton Mountain. He'll hit the trail later that day. Now, within the hiking community, it's considered good practice to let a friend know before you head out on a solo jaunt. The idea is, if you get lost or injured, someone will notice your absence and send help. Or in Keith's case, several someones. But beyond this precaution, Keith seems utterly unprepared for a hike. He doesn't have any equipment with him, nor does he have his camera. And he almost always likes to photograph his hikes. Most alarmingly, he also doesn't have any food, water, or snacks. And this isn't the sort of climb you'd want to attempt without supplies. It takes about four hours to summit Pendleton and another two to get back down. That's an all-day trip, and Keith isn't starting until late afternoon. It'll be dark before he reaches the summit. Plus, there isn't a clearly marked trail to the top of the mountain. Instead, hikers have to scramble over loose rocks and overgrown vegetation covering two and a half miles to get to the peak. The route is dotted with 50-foot drops that aren't fully visible because of the brush. It's also very steep, so it would be easy for an unwary traveler to fall. On top of all of this, Keith is known for having a fear of heights. It doesn't seem to be especially severe, and he's even been on this particular hike before. But Keith wasn't able to reach the peak on that previous trip, and that was during daylight hours, and with Ted Parker as a guide. So it's odd to think he'd have so much confidence about a solo nighttime climb. Now, I have to imagine Keith's friends and acquaintances know this trek is a bad idea, so it seems like nobody takes him seriously when he tells them about his plans. They figure it's just Keith being idealistic, excitable Keith. But for his part, Keith's resolute. He gets to Ted Parker's diner around 4 p.m. and buys a can of soda, but he doesn't buy any supplies or snacks for the trail. And as he's checking out, he tells Ted Parker the same thing he told everybody else. He adds that he plans to be home by 10 p.m., joking, if I don't come back, call on the rescue. Ted Parker agrees to keep an eye out for Keith. Then, the sports writer turned novelist walks out of town, presumably headed toward Pendleton Mountain. And he's never seen again. On August 7, 1988, Keith Reinhardt started walking from Silver Plume to presumably Pendleton Mountain. He's reported missing the next morning, and a formal search begins right away. At first, the authorities assume Keith is alive. He hasn't been gone long enough for starvation or dehydration to be a concern. And while it did get down to 40 degrees last night and was raining off and on, it's unlikely he froze to death. He's probably just lost or injured. Unfortunately, locating a lost hiker on Pendleton Mountain is easier said than done. Even though rescuers know where Keith was headed, they still have to scour a huge swath of land. 
not only every potential route to the peak, but all the surrounding area where he could have wandered off and gotten lost. I already talked about the rough terrain that would make the trek difficult for Keith, and it poses challenges to search teams too. On top of that, Pendleton Mountain holds several open mine shafts and other holes Keith could have fallen through. In an interview, one of the rescuers says the Reinhardt search was like looking for the proverbial needle in a haystack. This haystack is 3,000 vertical feet of 60 degree slope. This was about as difficult a search terrain as we cover. Another rescuer surveys the area and estimates a fully thorough search would require 200 people combing the land for two weeks and they can't get anywhere near that number of volunteers. That's more than the entire population of Silverplume. Even still, the local authorities put together a sizable team, tracking dogs, dozens of volunteer rescue workers, even helicopters for an aerial search. They spend all of August 8th searching for Keith, but he doesn't turn up. In fact, the dogs don't even pick up his scent the rescuers can't find a trace of where he's gone. Now, this is odd because according to these teams, a moving person leaves behind an average of 80 clues per hour. Think dropped personal items, scraps of clothing or food, footprints, but Keith doesn't have any supplies to leave behind. He's in a sturdy pair of blue jeans and a flannel shirt, which may not tear on this terrain. And remember one other key qualifier, that statistic only applies to people who are in motion. If Keith is immobilized by an injury or trapped on an unnavigable mountainside, he wouldn't be moving. But instead of throwing in the towel, the rescue team doubles down on their search for Keith. Over the next two days, their ranks swell to nine search dogs, six helicopters, and 55 volunteers. On Thursday, August 10th, four days after Keith goes missing, they're up to 80 searchers. That's more than half of Silverplume. But still, there's no trace of Keith. At this point, the rescue team also has to reckon with the fact that Keith's been exposed to the elements for four days and four nights without food or water. At that point, a few team members start watching the skies for flocks of birds because scavengers would descend on Keith's body if he died on the trail. But still, there's nothing. It's almost like he never set foot on Pendleton Mountain. By Friday, the local rescue team calls in search and rescue experts, which is likely necessary because the mission is turning dangerous. Approximately 24 volunteers are taken off duty because they're showing signs of exhaustion. Three dogs need veterinary treatment, and possibly due to windy conditions, one of their search planes crash, killing the pilot and severely injuring a passenger. Keith has been missing for six days, and there are still no clues as to his whereabouts. It doesn't seem possible that he's managed to survive all this time undiscovered. Two days after the plane crash, on Sunday, August 14th, the formal search is called off a few volunteers continue to explore the mountain in an unofficial capacity, but nobody finds anything. Five months later, in January 1989, Keith's family hosts a benefit to raise money for a private eye. They bring in enough to hire a former FBI agent. 
but he, like the search teams before him, comes up empty-handed. Put bluntly, the Reinhards are left with nothing but confusion and unanswered questions. And in the 30-some years since then, there have been no new developments in the case. That's over three decades with no body, no clues, not even a scent trail or alleged sighting to hint at what became of Keith Reinhardt. All his survivors have to go off of are theories. One of the most popular explanations is Keith had some kind of fatal accident while hiking up Pendleton Mountain. It's possible the search teams didn't find him because he wandered so far off the trail to an area they never thought to explore, or fell down one of the holes or mine shafts I mentioned. This is certainly the simplest and most straightforward possibility, but it isn't satisfying for many of Keith's loved ones, including his wife and children. They don't believe Keith suffered some ordinary accident, and they point to his odd behavior before he disappeared as proof. Keith told so many people about the trek before he left. It's common practice to notify people of your destination when taking a solo hike, but like an investigator with the Clear Creek County Sheriff's Office observed, he didn't have to tell everyone. Granted, Keith could be a chatterbox, but to his family, it's almost like he knew something would happen. And that's not the only indication that Keith may have anticipated some kind of disaster. He seems to have planted hints about it in his writing. See, when Keith is first reported missing, the authorities examine everything saved on his computer, including his short stories and unfinished novel. The novel's protagonist is a character named Guy Gypsum, who seems to be modeled after Keith himself. In the book, Gypsum intentionally goes missing in the Colorado mountains. Keith writes, Guy Gypsum changed into some hiking boots and donned a heavy flannel shirt. He understood Tom now and his motivation. Guy closed the door, then walked off toward the lush, shadowless Colorado forest above. This passage makes it sound like Keith's insert character may be headed into the woods to recreate Tom's suicide which granted would be a departure from his public insistence that Tom was murdered. But perhaps Keith changed his mind at some point in the hours before his disappearance. And maybe, like his character Guy Gypsum, Keith resolved to take his own life too. Except Keith's family refuses to believe he would ever kill himself. He was too optimistic and actively making plans for the future like the visit Carolyn had scheduled for just three days after his disappearance. In an interview with an Illinois area paper called the Northwest Herald, Sven describes his father, saying, I'm sure he's still alive. He went out to Silverplume to live. Now, unlike us, Sven knew his father well, so his opinion on the matter is valid. However, a study by Augusta University finds that between 25 and 50% of people who attempt suicide give no advance warning of their intentions. That's at least one in four people. So if Keith was struggling with depression, it's very possible that his family had no idea, especially since many men feel a lot of social pressure to not admit when they're struggling emotionally or need mental health support. 
Sometimes men with depression will ignore their symptoms or pretend they don't exist rather than seek a diagnosis. A study from the Australian and New Zealand Journal of Psychology details some of the tactics they use to hide from their emotions, like withdrawing from their families and friends, or using alcohol or physical activity to numb the pain. This feels similar to Keith's behavior during the summer of 88. He moved out of the home he shared with his wife, took up the physically demanding hobby of hiking, and the night before he disappeared, reportedly binge drank. I don't want to imply that I definitely think Keith died of suicide, just that it's possible. In truth, there isn't enough evidence to say either way. But for her part, Keith's daughter Tiffany believes the disappearance was a stunt. She suggests he was researching for his book and wanted to know firsthand how it might feel to go missing. It wouldn't be out of character for the former teen runaway to escape from his life as an adult. And this would explain why Keith told so many people about his hiking plans. He wanted everyone to notice when he disappeared and he could easily say he's walking to Pendleton Mountain, then go into hiding anywhere else in the world. One member of the search and rescue team notes that the walkway from Silver Plume to Pendleton Mountain passes a highway and goes near a railroad line. Keith could hitchhike, hop a train, or walk to some other trail and end up anywhere. Of course, if the disappearance was fake, you'd think Keith would come home to his family at some point. 30 years is an awfully long time for a publicity stunt, which brings us to other theories. Maybe Keith did go hiking that day and was met with foul play. There isn't hard evidence to suggest Keith was murdered. Nobody has ever been able to put forth a motive, a means, or a potential culprit. But many find it odd how Keith's disappearance bears so many resemblance to Tom Young's. Remember, they worked in the same rental storefront, they ran in the same social circles, and both their disappearances had ties to the peaks outside of Silver Plume. Keith left to hike on Pendleton Mountain, while Tom's body was found on nearby Republican Mountain. If Tom didn't die by suicide, if someone else killed him and his dog, the murderer was likely still at large on August 7th, 1988. And given how obsessed Keith was with Tom's case, it's possible he stumbled across something he shouldn't have seen. In fact, this is exactly what Keith's son Kai believes happened to their father. In multiple interviews with the press, they argue Keith solved Tom's homicide, and then the killer ensured he'd never have the chance to tell anyone what he found. I know that sounds pretty dramatic, and it ties up both strange cases with an extra neat bow a single killer who's to blame for two mysterious incidents in the same town within a short span of time. Except from what I can tell, Keith never feared anyone was trying to hurt him. He didn't go to police or take any steps to protect himself. There's very little reason to accept this explanation as true, but it's easy to see why Keith's family would cling to it. It's human nature to want this story to make sense. But real life isn't neat and tidy. Missing persons cases don't always get a solution that feels conclusive or cathartic. Sometimes the families are left to pick up the pieces while the rest of the world moves on. 
or rewrites history to make it more palatable. Keith doesn't have to be a specter of myth or a character in our collective true crime consciousness. He was a real person, a beloved colleague, a devoted father, and an unflinching optimist. Behind that positive facade, Keith may have had his secrets, a darker sense of unrest that drew him into the mountains, private demons that compelled him to take his own life, or maybe his drive to explore led to risky behavior that sealed his fate. We can't know for certain, but what's important to remember is that despite his happy demeanor, we cannot rule out the possibility that Keith struggled with depression. Mental health is a complicated topic, but you don't have to be an expert to help a friend in need. You can listen, show empathy, and validate their experience. Always encourage your loved ones to speak with a professional. Show them there's no shame in asking for help. Men can be especially vulnerable to the isolation that often accompanies depression. So the larger and more accepting a community we create, the less others will have to suffer in darkness. Thank you for listening. In the time it took you to finish this episode, 30 people disappeared in the United States alone. If you or someone you know needs assistance with a missing persons case, please visit seasonofjustice.org. Season of Justice is a nonprofit organization that provides funding to law enforcement agencies and families to help solve cold cases. For full disclosure, I am a member of the board. It's a great resource for both law enforcement and families in order to bring closure to those impacted by unsolved violent crime. You can find all episodes of Disappearances and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Disappearances stars Sarah Turney and is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound design by Alex Button, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Disappearances was written by Angela Jorgensen, edited by Aaron Lan, fact-checked by Haley Milliken, researched by Mickey Taylor, and produced by Aaron Larson. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out my other podcast, Voices for Justice.